Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Joining me today is someone who's built a multi-million dollar business on strong family values. She's a scientist who works in construction and has a passion for rugby. Union, of course. Josephine Sucker, co-owner and principal of the construction company Build Corp and chair of the Build Corp Foundation. You've got a $500 million plus business and you employ about 330 staff. We are thrilled that you found the time to join us here at Short Black. Welcome. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Josephine, let's start back. You're a girl from the Shire and you end up running one of Australia's most successful construction companies. How does that happen? Uh, It happens when you meet a builder and you didn't really know any builders before. I was one of those women who came into a sector like construction sideways. I trained as a scientist but ended up in construction because I had a little bit of exposure to it, found out I loved it. And uh, 35 years later, here I am still here. It was meant to be three months. I love it. It's fabulous. I'm sure there have been plenty of moments where there's been a glass ceiling. Being an owner of a company, as a woman, I guess that helps you cut through the chaff? Yeah, and look, there's no underestimating the benefit of having done this with Tony, of course, my husband. I'm sure it um, opened up a lot more opportunities knowing that I wasn't a woman on my own doing this. It's been a partnership. The whole story of both of our journeys, and in particular mine, has been a partnership. Whatever is important to one of us is important to both of us. And we've always approached everything that we've done, be it um, our work, our personal life, our rugby, raising families, whatever, aligned and shoulder to shoulder. And something like construction, where certainly when I began on construction sites in the city in 1985, no, the environment was very different for women then and arguably quite hostile. But I never felt any of the prejudices. They may have been there. I don't know if I was alert to them. The times were certainly um, more hostile to women, particularly in sectors like construction, but I think I probably got an easier path, I have to say. But then again, I am a bit more of a glass half full, more optimistic type personality. So every now and then I do worry and try and check myself and say, was it there, but I ignored it or was I there and I just kept pushing through it? I can never quite tell. Have you got any favourite tales as you're coming through the ranks in the industry where you were very mindful that you were being judged by your gender and not by your ability? I've got to be honest with you, I never really thought about, look, BuildCorp began in a recession. My husband came home one day without a job. It was 1990 and the industry had imploded as the, we had a severe downturn. If you recall, interest rates got up to, I think from memory, we were paying around 18.5% interest on our home mortgage. And I was seven and a half months pregnant with our first child. And in those moments, you're not worrying about building a profile. You're worrying about how do I pay the bills? How do we shape an opportunity for us to grow and have a career? And it wasn't even about a career. How do we have a job? How do we sort of stay working? And it was a matter of whatever it takes. And at that point in time, which was a very pivotal moment for us, we had always spoken about one day starting our own construction company, but certainly our choice wouldn't have been in the middle of a recession when I was seven and a half months pregnant. 
it's this business of, you know, luck, you know, when preparation meets opportunity. Strangely, in the middle of a recession, and I think we need to be mindful of this now, and as we're talking COVID, often opportunities can present themselves. And in a strange way, it was. And our preparation was that we had set up a shelf company a couple of years earlier that was just sitting there for one day when we began a construction company. But there was no thinking of shaping a profile or getting a reputation for myself. There was a thinking of how do we create a business that allows us to service all of our financial obligations. So for you, it's always been really about survival. I think so. And probably I was described five years ago for the first time, perhaps I've always been described that way, but it was the first time I saw it in print where Gordon Bray wrote a story about Build Corp for us, one of those, you know, milestone books. And he ended up writing something about Tony and I. And one of the ways we were, well, I was described was that I was very driven. And I can remember when I read the first draft of his book, I can remember being almost offended by it. I bristled, I read driven. I went, oh God, that's not right, Tony, look at that. Such and such has just described me as driven. And of course, it forced me to stop and reflect. It's like having a mirror held up when someone writes about you. Am I and what am I driven for? And at that point in time, I was very driven to create a safe environment to keep a roof over the head for our children. And having been a partner of somebody who came home without a job at a difficult time, it was creating a business that ensured that no other women felt the way I did, which was, gosh, you know, we've got no income coming into this family. We have financial commitments and a baby on the way. What are we going to do? So it was about creating a stable business where all of our people could feel safe, that we would make the right decisions with all the information we had available to us at the time for our people. Because when you look after your people, then you look after the business. Sounds like your philosophy through life. I guess it has been, but unfortunately, I'm not strategic enough or smart enough to realise that. I sort of wasn't until you stop and look back, as is often the way, where you think, well, what was, what underpins some of the decisions in the business and what underpins the way we live our life? And I think for both my husband and I, that's always been the focus, put your people first and the rest looks after itself. If you've got the wrong people, it doesn't matter what your forecast for the upcoming year will look like. If you don't have the right people to deliver on that forecast, you're not going to hit it anyway. It begins and ends with the people. Well, look, in February this year, Build Corp turned 30. You and your husband, Tony, have built an incredibly successful company. And through it all, you found a philanthropic streak where you determined it was time to give back. And you've chosen very strategically in the way you do that. What's helped you arrive at those decisions? So like most other businesses, we were always being asked to contribute to various charitable causes and we've always done that. Of course you do. And one day I sat back and said to Tony, we've given an awful lot as a business and personally by way of donations to organisations, but I actually couldn't see the impact for that. And a number of my experiences up to that point in time had put me at the coalface of not-for-profit organisations and philanthropy. I had served on organising committees for -for not-for-profit organisations. I chaired them. I had also been on the other side of giving money away. I was on a public company board where they had almost a billion dollars of charitable funds under management. And my role as a director there was to oversee the distribution of those funds. So I'd been that person with their hand out and also giving money away. And I learned how to give money away well as part of being involved with that organisation. And I guess Probably all of my life experiences to that stage taught me that I probably needed to be a little bit more strategic about it. So we established the Build Corp Foundation and the causes that we support, which is mental health, were actually decided by our people. So in its establishment, we went to our people and it's a pretty blunt instrument, but it was literally an email to everyone and said, got this foundation, what's important to you? If it's important to you, it's important to us. And mental health kept rearing its head time and time again. And as from when we began the 
foundation seven or eight years ago. We've just decided to make that the focus because in the last seven or eight years, the whole nation has watched how the mental health of the country and the world has becoming increasingly challenged. So yeah, we get behind what our people want. We're in the middle of this COVID meltdown and they're now predicting that mental health suicide rates may lift by about 50%. How big an impact has COVID been on construction in general from where you sit? Yeah, so there's this awful statistic in construction that is something like if you're a young man and you are working in the construction industry, you are twice as likely to die from suicide than any other way. And and so we know there's a very high suicide rate in young male construction workers. Why do you think that is? I couldn't tell you with any great authority why. There are lots of industries that are like that. I said dentistry is one that stands out in the professions. And I think for us, though, more broadly, it's how we have given our people permission in the industry to talk about mental health as an issue. And even though we're mostly male dominated, particularly on construction sites, it's not just the talking about it because we've been talking, we've been talking about how we feel now on construction sites for a number of years and the rate's still going up, right? So that isn't clearly the only answer. It's such a multifaceted thing, mental health, as we all know, and lots of different causes and there'll be lots of different solutions. But the first step is identifying it making your company a safe place to work, making our construction sites a safe place to work and be. I don't accept the argument that we're an industry that works six days a week. Construction sites are open six days. I don't accept that's the only reason. It's one of the reasons because there are lots of other organisations and professions that work six, seven days a week, like, you know, investment bankers and you in your role and et cetera. So we're not, we're not entirely sure why, but certainly I understand from John Brockton, the chairman of Lifeline, the numbers of men and women that make a decision to want to take their life are not so dissimilar, but men use more lethal means, so therefore are more successful in ending their lives. And that is something that the statistics are playing out with. And yes, COVID is going to see a lift, but poor old Australians off the back of the bushfires and the drought, we were in the grips of a a terrible mental health crisis, then came the droughts, then came the bushfires, and now COVID. We need a a very focused response on mental health because if we don't, the country will pay a huge economic cost for this anyway. So the federal government has been alert to this and uh, state governments and they've been investing really heavily in it. And I have to say they've been really open. I've spoken to Greg Hunt, the Minister for Health. I've spoken to the Premier. The Minister for Education here in New South Wales has partnered with us at the Build Call Foundation where we're rolling out mindfulness and meditation programs to 100,000 school children and 8,000 teachers. So they're alert to this and they're partnering with organisations like us and amplifying the reach of some of these really important programs. And importantly for us at the foundation, yes, we need to support the crisis end of mental health, which are the lifelines, you know, when somebody has finally picked the phone up to make that dramatic call. But I think for us now, how are we equipping our young people in the move forward to deal with contemporary Australian life? And that's probably a focus for the foundation. But I think more importantly now, it's a focus for governments, which is great. They often say facts are stranger than fiction. It's so true at the moment. How do you think we're coping with what's been thrown at us right now? Oh, look, I think it's probably fair to say I've never been so proud to be Australian. I'm such a proud Australian. But this response from the government has been amazing and when you see what's happening globally I just got off the phone from a colleague who lost an aunt in America in a nursing home and this aunt has three or four more siblings in that same nursing home so the family are terrified and I look at the response here in Australia and I just feel we were proactive and we now have a social license to take a platform and talk about best practice here in looking after our people but it took people in government to make some brave decisions And I think there's been a leadership vacuum in government and more broadly in the community. 
it's scary taking a brave different step and you sometimes might be out of step with the world or the rest of the community the same way the government did with uh, the World Health Organization etc but thankfully they did they didn't wait I think once we start to feel more emboldened to step outside of that comfort zone and as leaders make those brave decisions and the media and the community more broadly start understanding that when you are in a leadership role and you take a brave position, it's not always going to be right, but we'd rather people make brave decisions and make no decision because making no decision is a decision. And we need a little bit of um, wiggle room and forgiveness and maybe we need to earn that from people who work with us or for us to know that we're not always going to get it right, but to trust our intentions, that our starting point is we're trying to make the best decision we can with all the information we have at our fingertips at this point in time. You've been in the business for a long time. You've seen the GFC, all sorts of things thrown at the Australian economy. How long do you think it's going to take us to get through this phase? Here's the thing about Australia. We can flex pretty quickly. And let's have a look at what's happened in the short time, I think it's five weeks since we were put into lockdown, four or five weeks now. And in that short period of time, we've watched whiskey bottlers and distillers flip their business models to make hand sanitizers. We are watching organisations now in Australia increase the production of ventilators. We have very quickly learned how to become a little bit self-sufficient. And what I'm looking for now is no loss of that momentum and that energy because it's starting. And I'd love to understand some of these businesses and how they quickly turn their business models to see what's happening now as an opportunity. We need to be agile. This has always been the case. Businesses need to be agile and Australians need to be agile in how they think. This working from home and how quickly we've wrapped our minds around Zoom meetings and all the other ways of work that we are. I think this is an opportunity that Australians are uniquely placed for. I do think we are agile and nimble as a nation. And this is the time now for us to really plant ourselves globally as the nation that has all of the resources that we need at our doorstep to be very clear to the world that this is a country with such low sovereign risk. Our governance structures are so honest and generally very strong. And this is an amazing place for investment, but for Australians more broadly to think about what do we want a new Australia to look like. So I like this new challenge that's been thrown to us. I'd love to see manufacturing come back. My late grandfather founded a um, business, Midford School Shirts, the school shirts that we all wore. My father's father founded that business. It's still going, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's still going. They sold it to Gazelle years ago. But um, I remember as a little girl, our, my grandfather had 11 children. In January, the grandfather would pull the core out of all of the grandchildren and we'd have to go and stack school shirts into boxes to get them ready and out to schools for a February start. Every kid in Australia, I think, had one of those shirts. Every kid in Australia had one. Yeah, and even if it wasn't a Midford one, it had a different label on it. It came out of the same factory because I was responsible for putting some of those labels on, you know. But to see a sea of machinists and and warehousing and and production that we don't see today, we've lost short a lot of that. We need a good rethink. And I can see Andrew Liveris is heading up an initiative from the federal government to have a look at manufacturing in this country. But I think we need to sit back and say, well, who is happy to be involved in a, in manufacturing in this country. I think there's been a little bit of, mm, I'd rather not be stacking shelves at Woolies, I'd rather a job that looks like this. Well, I think we need to rethink that. We need to reinvest in our technical colleges in TAFE and understand what type of nation do we want? How do we reframe some of these jobs that are going to be created if we do become a successful manufacturing country? And I think there's opportunity for it. We've got all the resources here. Then we don't need to see iron being sent away and us buying it back of steel, we can manage that here. Then we don't need to see, um, you know, panic buying and, and reliance on overseas imports as much as we have. And that's not even, we're talking about our agriculture and farming. 
It is a real pivot point for the country. We've learned very quickly, haven't we, the need to be less reliant on other countries and work out how we can fulfil our own needs and desires. Exactly. And I think this is an opportunity now and we have to strike now. We have to begin to reimagine our country in a way that Australians will come on the journey with us. And if enough people do, we will get to a critical tipping point where everybody does. It's very difficult to get consensus, of course, across the whole country and we, and we don't necessarily want that. But with enough momentum now from business people with agile minds to begin to establish organisations, to begin to rethink our industrial relations environment, there's no question the cost of labour in this country has been prohibitive to some of the growth of some of our industries. What does that mean? How can we reimagine it while continuing to put human rights at the very centre of everything we do? There are a whole lot of structures now that need a, a full and total rethink. And I think if we're brave enough to do that and can do that quickly, we will certainly reap the benefits of that. How has COVID affected your business? We've been really lucky, actually, in construction to the extent that construction has been deemed an essential service, so we haven't stopped. What we've had to do, though, to adhere to the guidances around, you know, 1.5 metre distance, social distancing, etc., is run our construction sites over longer periods to thin out the number of men and women working on sites. It's come at a cost to the business for existing projects that we've tended on where we didn't expect in our pricing that that would be something that we'd need to do, increase our site supervision costs, et cetera. But certainly for the industry moving forward, if this is a way we're going to be working for a period of time, that will be priced into uh, future jobs that we're tendering on. So the cost of construction could go up slightly. But, you know, our staff have been terrific at BuildCorp. We've asked some of them to consider taking a temporary pay cut, which has been really helpful for us. People are amazing. That's only temporarily until we find our new rhythm and balance, which we seem to have done pretty quickly and is still winning work and this country is still moving, but we need business leaders to continue to make bold and brave decisions. One thing that would affect construction would be if the economy more broadly went, we're grinding to a halt and therefore we don't need any more fit-outs or new buildings or constructions. Well, that would affect us. So delays in decision-making have a serious impact down the supply chain and to someone like us. So I can give you a live example. We were awarded a project and we had begun on site before the country was put into lockdown and we probably had to pay about eight or nine weeks of carrying costs of staff when the clients went, we just need to stop construction now. And that's okay, but we had a whole team ready to go. Someone's got to pay their salaries, right? And what about your pipelines? Are your pipelines interrupted uh, with the international lockdown? Interestingly, again, this is where Australians are so great. When China began to get into trouble and we watched what was coming out of Wuhan before we were put into lockdown, most good builders and good contractors began to look really closely at their supply chain and make sure they had other alternatives. I'm a trustee of the Australian Museum and we're in the middle of a really big refurbishment job there, which is going to be amazing. And a couple of the things that looked a little bit tenuous for a moment were lifts and elevators, which were coming out of China. But the uh, contractor there who are doing a really great job were able to secure and identify Spain and, believe it or not, an Australian company who were able to supply a backup for us if need be. And the same has happened for stone for that project, actually, where we'll be securing stone. was going to come out of Italy, but it'll be from Australia. Yes, that's coming at a cost. But, you know, most contractors turned their mind to how to change pretty quickly. And, you know, all of these things, all these business risks end up getting built into the price of projects. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. COVID aside, how would you describe the construction industry? Is it a fair playing field for men and women starting up? The interesting thing is a pipeline of women in construction. If you were to attend a a school and speak to a bunch of little girls about what they might want to be when they grow up, you'd be challenged to find one who might say, I really want to be a builder or an electrician or, you know, that I dare say they'll probably come up with a whole bunch of other suggestions of things that they might want to be, including me, you know, a hairdresser and a, a dressmaker and all, all the discussions have got to happen so much earlier. We need young girls to imagine construction as a career for them. And I've got a couple of girls, women that work for me who are from countries like Ireland, Kuwait, Iran, Iraq, where construction and that high-level maths and engineering is actually part of their curriculum. In Ireland, construction is a subject, an elective subject, that you take at school. I have a, a young woman working with us. She's a project manager, well, a bid manager now. She's fantastic. And I said to her one day, what took you to construction? As a woman, what was it about construction that appealed to you? Because we need your lesson shared with young women. And she said, well, you know how construction is a subject at school? I said, no. <laughs> she said, well, yeah, you know, like in the curriculum. I said, well, I don't believe it is here in Australia. And when she was in year nine, she brought me a curriculum from Ireland. And it's actually a, a subject. And I said, and what attracted you to construction? And she looked at me like it was just such a strange question. And she said, well, I'm not sure. You know how, I don't know, like we all live in homes and things. It's almost like the way we have conversations around other industries that are typically feminised industries, how are we having them with young girls? Well, what's the typical career path then into construction? Do you need to chase being an engineer or an architect? What new areas do we need to flesh out for young women who can chase a successful career in construction? I can give you a really great live example of a project we took. I'm on the board of the Property Council of Australia, but I served on their diversity committee, which was fantastic, and we ran a pilot program called Girls in Property. And we ran a pilot. We went into four girls' schools in Sydney. And we spoke with the principals of those schools and we shared the issue we had in property, which was a lack of young women choosing to take subjects in year 11 and 12, which would qualify them for property-type courses in university and tech. So with that in mind, we partnered with four schools and we took these girls for a whole week where they visited construction sites, they went to architects firms, they went into Westfields in the city and spoke to developers and property asset owners. By the end of that course and towards the end of the year, the principals reached out to the property council and said something really interesting has happened here. A lot more girls are choosing to take extension maths in year 11, these were year 10 girls, for next year as a consequence of having been exposed to women in property and not even knowing that that was an area that they could go into and what that might look like. So number one, there's an exposure piece for young girls. How many women are they exposed to who are civil engineers, who are builders? And probably not an awful lot, right? So we know that when we do, there's very quickly a flip and an uptake. And in this case, it was great because the girls then chose year 11 and 12 subjects that would then qualify them for subjects like civil engineering, land economy, you know, a lot of the professions we need there, but it's got to go way back to schools, I've learned. That's fascinating, being the parent of a young daughter who enjoys maths, but, you know, like some of us finds it challenging. I think the problem where they get stuck is what do they do with it? And you've just come up with, you know, four or five career paths, be it civil engineering, land economy, architecture, you know, the property portfolio, where if they have a really good grounding in maths, the world could be their oyster. 
Well, that's right. And look, I'm the mother of a daughter who desperately didn't want to do maths and thought she was terrible at it. And in year 10, pronounced to me who studied four unit maths at school and physics and chemistry and taught maths and science, pronounced to me, her mother, I'm not going to do maths. I'm not very good at it. So I'm going to drop it for year 11 and 12. And so I managed to um, speak to her teacher and and encourage her to stay on with it. But she did one of these accelerated courses. I think the way I sold it to my daughter was, you know, if you do it this way, you won't have to study maths in year 12. You know, we can just accelerate it. I think they call them pathway courses in New South Wales or something like that. So essentially she did her year 12 maths exam in year 11. She had no idea what she wanted to do when she finished school, but she thought it would be something in the arts. So she did an arts degree. What is she today? A doctor. Thank God she kept maths there. And I, for me, it's not about maths is really important or the arts are really important. I think a broad education for young people is really important. And today, if you're in New South Wales, you can really narrow your subject selections, I think, in a way that's perhaps unhelpful for school. You know, specialising is for technical colleges and, and universities. It's not for school. I left school with eight of my 12 units that I studied in maths and science. That's not balanced. I think I did French and English as well, but I needed someone to say, get rid of one of those sciences and do geography or history or something else. And school is for broad education. And I think some of our girls are. Uh, given an opportunity to perhaps prohibit themselves from further study later on in sectors like construction where we really need more women because we need that diverse lens, not because women are going to do a better job. They'll do a different job. They'll look at our sector in a totally different way. And the end outcome for clients will be far superior because there are more people with different views looking at the same opportunity different ways. A consistent thread in your career has been philanthropy. And to flesh that out for those that don't know, uh, bear with me, but you were a member of the Infrastructure Advisory Board, University of Sydney, uh, of Melbourne, I'm sorry, President of Australian Women's Rugby since 2015, Director of the Rugby Foundation, Chair of Bill Court Foundation, as you mentioned, Governor of the Centenary Institute, Director of Opera Australia, Director of Sydney University Football Club Foundation, on the Board of Trustees for the Parramatta Parklands Trust, the Australian Museum. I'm exhausted just going through the list, Josephine. Where does that philanthropic streak come from? And broadly speaking, how can we build Australia's philanthropic profile? Because by comparison to America and a number of our Northern Hemisphere neighbours, we're pretty poor in that space, aren't we? <laughs> in Australia's defence, we're really great at the volunteering, right? And I think the Sydney Olympic Games showed that. And I can remember my late father, he was a doctor but he was mad about sport. And the most exciting thing, arguably, one of the most exciting things that happened in his life was that Sydney was able to host the Olympic Games and he volunteered to be a doctor. And they needed doctors for the smaller nations who couldn't afford to arrive with doctors themselves. And he was treating athletes from Namibia. and look, It was just the highlight of his career. But look at the volunteers that we saw in Sydney. And I, I think for what we lack in philanthropy, we make up for in volunteering. You often say, and you know I believe this, that sport is not only the great leveller, but it's also the great door opener. The foreign ministers cherry-picked you and a handful of other people who are passionate about sport. To what end? To assist the Pacific nations? What do you want to do? To increase diplomatic relations within the Indo-Pacific, to understand how we can work with our sporting heroes and the sports community to increase opportunities for trade and exposure and, and improve our diplomatic relations in the region. So she's actually picked a group of really eminent athletes like, you know, Anna Mears and Petro Sivanasiva, Gavin Wanganin, Curtis McGrath, someone from Austrade and from universities. And it's a lovely broad council 
where a number of sports are represented, but she's handpicked a group of council members who have very complementary skills. And we're all working in small sub-working groups on different areas around communications and education and the Pacific region and how we can amplify the opportunities and funding that comes from DFAT a lot of the time to ensure that we are good neighbours and good regional partners. The foreign minister is also the Minister for Women, Maurice Payne, and she is very interested in understanding how Australia can assist the Pacific nations with issues that we're struggling with in this country as well. We're not immune to domestic violence, etc. So she has certainly the right people around the table for that. It's such a thrill for me chairing this committee. It's incredible, isn't it, how sport can be the best calling card. I mean, doors open, unlike any other. Oh, look, doors open. And, and again, back to the behavioural competences of these people, that Lisa Strathlaker, you know, captain the Southern Stars, we see her on television now, such a champion, such a hero. I watch her in action. She and Stephanie Brands, both in the committee, and they're doing work with the communications working group. And I watch those women in action, and these are, these are genuine leaders. They're just so impressive, and it's a real privilege to be able to work alongside them. Look, let's get away from sport for a minute, Josephine. Let's get away from business. Let's talk about Josephine Sucker, a girl from the Shire who, let's face it, has ended up pretty independently wealthy, who can afford to give back the way you give back, and you lead a pretty rich life. What's the best part of it, and do you occasionally pinch yourself? Oh, I think the best, and I have to finish that sentence of yours, that begins and ends with family, right? A rich life for me is family. And uh, I felt blessed to have been able to have two children and they're often on their way and we've been empty nesters for a number of years now. But that was my and Tony's greatest thrill and privilege. Having come from the Shire and my father was a public servant. Yes, he was a doctor, but he ran the local public hospital. He was medical superintendent of Sutherland Hospital. So, you know, mum didn't work in paid employment. So we had a modest but really, really happy and full life where family was at the centre of it and Tony and I are certainly that as well. Happy times for me and success is when the family are together and uh, doing what they do best. So that to me is happiness. I think the work that we do in philanthropy and the like is informed by the fact that where I live today, I've never been inside of a property like the one I live in now when I was a girl in the Shire. I understand the good fortune of having having happen to be born in this country you know there are a lot of people who work a lot harder than Tony and I ever have who could never with all of that work and a lot smarter than Tony and I just because of where they happen to be born this is a throw of the dice thing you know I never take for granted living in this country and in fact I remember when I had my son I'd been very unwell through the pregnancy and my grandmother the one that had the 11 children uh, the Midford family they my grandmother said to me when I left the hospital she said Josephine, in Lebanese, I might add, Josephine, when you leave here, you kiss the ground when you leave this hospital because women like you died in our country in Lebanon. They died in childbirth. This is the best country in the world in full Lebanese. And I've never taken that for granted and nor do anyone in my family. I was born here and my parents were raised here. They were really little when they came to Australia. And I know that not to waste this good fortune, which is why the passion for philanthropy is what it is, I know that it's a throw of the dice and why, why would we not when we can do what we can? It would be strange not to, but happiness and success for me is, begins and ends at family. On the journey to wealth in your experience, what's been the hardest thing to come to terms with? Is it understanding the responsibility or is it, you know, you start mixing in different circles and there's an expectation? Where has been the biggest, most confronting adjustment for you, do you think? Probably that flip from 
we began Build Corp. I was 26. Tony was 30. So we were so young. And we were just literally day to day trying to establish a business and ensure that it was sustainable and, and, and get ourselves set up as a young family. Right? So that was sort of the focus. And then people were watching us as that was happening. And you you don't know people are watching you because you're just so busy getting the kids up in the morning and getting them to school and getting to work and doing all the things you need to do. You're so busy being and doing. That's right. And then people ask you to give them a bit of a hand along the way and you do that and you just kind of weave that into your day and life. And then before you know it, you're the wrong side of 50. And then um, people start asking you for, well, you end up you know, being invited to do podcasts like this with you, frankly, um, Sandra, which to me, you know, every day of the week is extraordinary and I can pinch myself because you don't realise at that time that some of those life experiences ought to be shared because some of those things every now and then might be helpful to some other young woman or man on their journey. So it was probably that moment of that realisation where where I would never have used my voice before, not because I was a woman or not, because it was just I didn't think that there was value in it but got my story it's just like every other Australian story to actually I have a responsibility to use my voice and what if I use it and it's wrong what if I say the wrong thing what if I get the business into trouble somebody you know you just I've never really done that before I used to reject opportunities for um, newspaper interviews and television I thought no what if I say something that's not right what if who would want to know that and I never ever did it and then one day a young woman in property said to me but if you don't then who us, we have no influence, we have no voice. If you don't speak for us young women in property, then who will? And it was a really defining moment for me. I sort of sat back and thought, well, I need to suck up the fact that I might get things wrong, I might say that, but they're right, you know, and somebody else will be doing this for my daughter in medicine. And for all the other daughters, you know, there are other women and men creating structures and frameworks for my daughter in medicine. And if not me, then who? And I think when I kind of got to that stage, I thought, well, I have a responsibility. So all of a sudden, then I started agreeing to use my voice and be brave and comfortable with that. And that that took a bit of change. Yeah, that was a big change. I'm not surprised, but you are yet another successful leader in this country who has at times struggled with the imposter syndrome. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I just didn't think anybody would want to know. I saw my place first and foremost as a, a wife, a daughter, a mother, and because that was they're my happy places when I'm doing all of that. It's not that I don't love the other stuff, but in the absence of the things that are most important to everybody and anybody, and for me, it's family. I can't find joy in the others, but it was around genuinely thinking I had something to offer. And look, I am from a culture. There's no question in Lebanese and European and Asian cultures. You know, your opinion is worth something when you're really old. You know, the wisest person in the village is the oldest person. In fact, there's a saying, if you don't have an old person live with you, go and buy one because that counsel and that that life experience, how do you ever replace it? And one day it was brought to my attention by our chairman of a public company I was working for. I was describing myself as young or not experienced enough. And he looked at me and he said, you're not that young. (laughs) I thought, well, maybe I'm not. And then, you know, realising that it's time now to flip that in and share that a bit more broadly when asked. Well, Josephine, I think one of your trademarks is your largesse of spirit, your constant ability to give back, the generous nature that you bring to everything you do, and we couldn't be more grateful that you could spend some time with us here at Short Black. Thanks for your time. Oh, thank you, Sandra. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app.